Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. It will be difficult for me to say the word Jude without yelling it. Uh, those of you who don't know, I have a son named Jude. Usually I'm yelling Jude. So I'll try and say it in a nice way. Okay. Um, my plan to speak today uh, started out as a good plan. Um, I was going to do part of Jude at our Bible study that we have at our house, and then I was going to do the last part of Jude, and that was great until I read the last part of Jude and uh, realized how humbling this is going to be. Um, I wish I would have picked something else. Um, because what the last book of the last part of Jude does is it speaks into some of the biggest weaknesses that I have. And I'd rather uh, talk about your weaknesses, because it's easier to preach that way. But it looks like it's going to be about me. Okay. So in the book of Jude, we um, what we talked about in our Bible study was basically what the main idea of Jude is all about, which starts off um, in, the second, in the second verse. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read the part of uh, the book that we're going to talk about today, but then we're going to have to go back and I'm going to have to give you a bunch of context, but that's okay. It'll be, it'll be good. We're going to start at verse 17. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we start at verse 17 of the book of Jude. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words, uh, that words spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers, followers, of their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in, in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his, glory, of his glory, blameless with great joy, and to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What is nice about some of these epistles towards the end of, the, of Scripture is that the purpose of the, of the book is often given very early. 
And if you look at uh, verse 2, it says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Um, In the prayer of confession today, um, part of what was lamented over is our lack of mercy. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my biggest faults uh, are these three things. Um, I have a uh, I have a lot of difficulty with mercy uh, because I'm very proud of myself and my accomplishments. And therefore, when someone falls short, I have very little mercy on them. I have a difficulty with peace because I find myself more and more, how to put it, angsty as I get older. I turned 50 recently, and I was told I get to say what I want now that I'm 50. I've also been finding that what I want to say isn't usually very helpful Uh, because peace, the kind of peace that the Lord talks about, is often something I miss. And the worst part is the love part. It's difficult for me to love. And so as I read this book, I am filled with, um, with regret and filled with conviction because that's what this book is about, these three things. Um, Some people see the book of Jude as a book of apologetics. Um, I don't think that's really where it is, but though it does talk about contending for the faith, and somehow contending for the faith is going to have something to do with mercy, peace, and love. So how does that work? So let's look very quickly at verse 3, where it says, Beloved, and this is, this is Jude's uh, talk to the church. He speaks of them warmly, of those who are beloved of God. It's even better than me loving you, God loves you, and me, and me uh, recognizing God's love for you is a demonstration of my love for you. I think is where Jude is going with this greeting. And he, he says this three times. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write, uh, you, uh, write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. So what he's saying is, I wanted to write something theological and kind of cool that you guys would be able to really understand about our common salvation, But the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, laid on his heart to tell them to contend for the faith. Um, I don't know if you guys know uh, Paul Washer. He's a minister. um, And he, uh, he has this thing that he says a lot of times at the beginning of his sermons, which is that he wants to say what he's going to say as if he's about to die, like he's a dead man. And I think this is something like what Jude wants to do. He, wants to, he has something he wants to say that would be 
probably quite uh, helpful, if I can put it this way, safe, maybe. And the Holy Spirit leads him to say, no, you need to say what you need to say about this, this contending for the faith. You need to preach as if you're a dead man, like it's the last thing you're going to say. And that's hard to do because you know that when you preach or when you say something publicly, that you have to face these people again the next week. But if we, all, if, but if we preach this way, if we preach like we're dead men, we have to say hard things. So he starts talking about, um, in verse 4, he starts talking about these people that are sneaking into the church, saying that God gives grace in your lusts. And so there are these people coming into the church that are evil, horrible, despicable human beings that are out to come get you like wolves. Because what they want to do is convince you that God's grace is a kind of grace that allows for your lusts to continue. And so if you really want to understand God's grace, what you have to understand is his grace allows for your sin. And we live at a time where that is happening quite a bit, right? I mean, if any of you have seen anything that Andy Stanley has said lately, if you don't know who I'm talking about, good. <laughs> don't look him up. Uh, but if you do know who I'm talking about, you're talking about a wolf who is seeking to devour the church. And as a wolf, he is encouraging people to believe that God's grace is so gracious that God's not even holy anymore. He doesn't care about that. He just wants everybody to be happy. And so if, you're, if you have lusts, God is okay with your lusts, at least certain lusts, and it's all right. And you have person after person doing this. This is part of what Andrew, our pastor, has worked so hard to fight against with Revoice which to us is our pastor telling us about it. For us, it was our pastor hearing that our pastor wrote some stuff about it. But to him, he was in the middle of a great battle where people kept telling him to settle down. It's not that big of a deal. Even the conservatives in our community. And he was fighting that. And what they were telling everyone was that, well, God's grace, of course, would, you know, God's grace isn't going isn't to allow for sin um, of the act of homosexuality, but it will, God is okay with you committing the sin of same-sex attraction. That God's okay with. And so just, you know, we're just not gracious enough, you know. We've actually become more gracious than God. And so you have this happening everywhere. So it's giving you this picture Okay, that even in, in Jude's time, there are these people that are saying, and it always comes down to lust, by the way, um, when poor doctrine is brought in, oftentimes poor doctrine is designed to allow for someone's lusts. Right now, it's LGBTQ stuff. Um, there's more letters, but I've got time. I would take the rest of my time. Okay. But the point is, is that these, the, the wolves are coming in. And so he goes in to talk about what's going to happen to them. 
It says once these people uh, come in, he starts describing how God is going to deal with them. One way, in verse 5, he says God's going to deal with them the way he dealt with those people in Egypt after God saved the, the, um, the people of Israel from Egypt. They went through the Red Sea, that everyone saw it, and you still had people that didn't believe. And in quote verse 5, it says, um, God destroyed all who did not believe. So the judgment for these kind of people coming in to, um, to be wolves against the church, God will destroy them. That's part of that judgment. In verse 6, he talks about how there were angels who fell. And God will eternally judge them with darkness. In verse 7, he, talk, he gives another example of what this judgment will look like. In Sodom and Gomorrah. And he doesn't talk about the, the fire that God poured down on Sodom and Gomorrah that eventually went out. He said he's judging Sodom and Gomorrah with an eternal fire. And so imagine... People in Sodom and Gomorrah dying of burning to death only to be greeted by an eternal fire of burning. And that's God's judgment on these kinds of people. In verse 8 through 10, it talks about men who take on this authority as if they have authority over people and they arrogantly take God's credit. And he says, by, by these things, the things that these kind of men are doing, they will be destroyed. Verse 10. Verse 11 says that they have gone the way of Cain, they will suffer, and they will perish in the rebellion, rebellion of Korah. And if you remember anything of, about Korah, they were the ones that were swallowed up by the earth and, there was, and burnt. Verse 12 through 13 talks about how these men that are coming in to try and say that there is no law against our lusts, God, God graciously allows for our sin. He says these people are empty. These are meaningless people. They're useless people. He uses these terms like clouds without water. He uses all other terms. What he's trying to get at is these are nothing people. These are nothing people. They come in promising all these great things, and there's nothing there. They are nothing people. And God's wrath is kindled against them to the point for what's waiting for them is black darkness that will be theirs forever. It's reserved for them. God has reserved special punishment for these people. And he reminds them in verse 14 through 15 that even Enoch prophesied that the Lord came to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. If you really want to understand the book of, of, um, of Jude, what you're trying to understand is a book of judgment. This is a book of judgment to say, this is what is waiting for these kinds of people. Now, what does that have to do with the main idea of the book being mercy and peace and love? I would suggest to you that he is telling 
these people to contend for the faith. Why? Because they have been shown mercy. You see, our sinful nature is so bad that if it were not for the mercy of God, these people would be us. These people who are arrogant, these people that come in and want God to bless our lusts. We would be them, but God showed mercy on us. And he goes in verse 16 and talks about how these people are grumblers. They blame people for things. Lustful, arrogant, they flatter for the sake of advantage. And here we come to our verses, verse 17. But you, beloved, you need to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles and of Christ. And what were these words spoken beforehand? Then the last times these kind of people would come and they'd be following after these ungodly lusts. And these are the ones, it goes on to say, that cause divisions in the church. They're worldly-minded in the church. They're devoid of the Spirit while in the church. Now, verse 20, but you, beloved, okay, you're going to be different. And now we're going to see all this different contrast. So I want you to see the big picture of this book. It starts off saying that he's asking the Lord to give them mercy, to give them peace, and to give them love. And he's doing this so that they might contend for the faith. That contending for the faith is going to involve mercy, peace, and love. And this mercy, peace, and love is going to be needed for this contending for the faith because they have been showed mercy, peace, and love in a world where God is angry against those who are rebelling against him, who are coming into the church. And so for you to have mercy, peace, and love in the contending for your faith, this is what you're going to need. Verse 20. Verse 20, but you, beloved. Now, this is where he's contrasting. He doesn't want you to be one of those that divide the body. He wants you to be the ones that build up each other. It says, building yourselves up on the most holy faith. Building each other up with the most holy faith. This means that faith is not strengthened alone. I hope you were listening in Sunday school for those of you that were here. In Sunday school this morning, you were taught that there is something biblical about showing up for church. It's not just a tradition. It's just not something that the, the Western thinkers have done. But rather, gathering together at church is important because what Scripture keeps telling us is that faith is not strengthened all by yourself. You need each other to build up your faith. If you feel isolated or alone, that's exactly where God wants you to be, or that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. He wants you to be isolated. If you've ever seen, um, if you've ever seen these. 
shows, um, and some of them are pretty cool, uh, Planet Earth and stuff like that, where it shows you, you know, what's amazing about Planet Earth. But sometimes they show you uh, animals eating each other, which is kind of gross. Because um, animals don't have mercy. They're just hungry, and so if the thing's still alive, they're still eating while it's still alive. It's, it's terrifying. Um, but the way they do it is they isolate, right? When, when the lions are isolating, you know, an antelope or whatever it is, um, they find one and get it away from the others. And they do this because it's much easier to destroy something when it's alone. Loneliness is a tool that Satan uses. Loneliness is a tool that Satan uses in many ways. He can use it in a way that you feel lonely, even though you have tools all around you to help you not be lonely. Satan can also use this as a tool in that you might feel lonely because no one's helping you. So if you really want a kind of church where you're building each other up in the faith, you can't be so formal, if I can put it that way. Let me, put it to you. Let me show you what I mean. So um, I'm not going to name the denomination, but we were in a denomination before. Um, that was a very professional denomination. Um, very Presbyterian. Um, you would go to church. The pastor would preach uh, from, a, from something in Scripture, and it would be, be very good that he would develop these ideas very nicely. Um, but there would never be this point in the ser- sermon where he would then say, so this is what's wrong with us. He would never bring that up. He would just say, you know, isn't Christ wonderful that even... Even as we look at what Paul is saying here, Christ has delivered us from that. And everyone was like, yeah, that's great. And they felt great. And no one, there was hardly anyone that complained um, or got involved in each other's lives. Um, There was always those things that would happen where you'd have to get involved, where there would be someone that did something absolutely so terrible, the elders would have to actually do something. But other than that, it was very professional. You would show up. The guy would talk about, you know, he would exegete, not challenge you. You would feel happy, and, you know, and he would always end it with Jesus. And no one got involved with each other. What happens when we get involved with each other? I mean, you understand that um, it is easier to deal with people the less involved you are in their life. Right? I have friends at my work that we're friends probably because we don't know each other very well. Do <laughs> you understand what I mean by that? Once you start to get to know each other really well, things get really complicated. Right? People are great to visit, but once you get involved in their life, it gets super complicated because they start becoming family. And family is complicated. Um, most of us, if we described our family, we would say, I love my family, but, <laughs> right? We'd always say the but part because, of course, we love our families, right? 
but it's complicated. Uh, this is why Thanksgiving is great, but <laughs> when everyone shows up, um, it's rough, right? I mean, my family. I come from a family that, uh, that's very educated. Um, so everyone has a degree, and uh, so when we come together for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, um, it gets complicated. Uh, I'm the only Presbyterian, so that's a problem amongst Baptists. Um, and I'm not talking about Reformed Baptists. I'm talking about the ones that would read Revelation 13 that we did this morning and have a very, very strong view of that. Um, you probably weren't paying attention. You may have to reread that, and I'll tell you what I mean. So the point is, things get complicated, right? And people don't see eye to eye, and you have to fight. And then after the fight, you still have to come together, right? You can fight and be that one person that doesn't come back at Christmas, right? But then eventually they'll come back because it's family, right? If we're going to build each other up in the faith, we have to start treating each other like family, which means things get complicated and ugly because that's what is expected of us in building each other up in the faith. People that have committed a lot of sin and are imperfect people have to exercise authority over other people that have committed a lot of sin and are imperfect people. It goes on to say not to, um, the contrast continues, don't be devoid of the Holy Spirit, instead be devoted to prayer in the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. He takes our weak, pathetic prayers that are often self-centered and selfish and as we repent of these things and we try, to, we try to pray well, the Holy Spirit takes them, perfects them, and gives them to the Father on our behalf. What he's doing is he's building us up in the faith. Right? When we take communion, there is something spiritual going on with the Holy Spirit in which he is building up our faith. That's one of the main issues of the Reformation that we want to hold on to, why we're Reformed, is that we're not just remembering Christ's death before he comes. We are also gaining more faith in our experience of communion. But the Holy Spirit works on us. There's a spiritual, supernatural activity going on. And it goes on in our prayers, where the Holy Spirit is building up our faith because he's perfecting our prayers, and we don't deserve it. It's an act of mercy on us. It goes on to say that instead of being flatterers and trying to take advantage of each other through flattery, we need to keep the love of God. We need to keep the love of God. And we see this in verse 21. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And what we see is keeping in the love of God is being dependent on his mercy for eternal life. 
we are so ungrateful. Because what the book of Jude is showing us is how wrathful God can be against unholiness. And the judgment is devastating. It is not a judgment that you survive. It's a judgment that you are continually destroyed, destroyed, destroyed. And you live it and live it and live it and live it. And it never ends. That's the power of the wrath of God. And he had mercy on you. And even though our prayers are weak and pathetic, the Holy Spirit has mercy on us and perfects our prayers. And this kind of love that we have in God is a genuine love. It's not designed to flatter each other or try to manipulate each other. It is a genuine love, and it's a love we don't deserve. And that brings us in verse 22 where we're introduced to three groups of people. And this is really, I think, the point of the whole book. The point of the whole book is to give you that picture of what it means to contend in the faith because there's terrible people coming in and the wrath is going to be terrible against them. You have been given mercy and the only way you're going to contend for the faith is if you all stick together. Contending for the faith is not getting a PhD in apologetics. Contending for the faith is sticking together as a family in your church, and you work hard together to contend for each other's faith. And so it introduces us to three groups of Christians. Group number one, verse 22. With all that in mind... Have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy. You've been given mercy. You can show a little bit of mercy on those that are doubting. These that are doubting are people that have a weak faith. It might be everyone in this room. When in the end, we're really asking ourselves, is all of this true? Some of you, your faith might feel strong only because you have not been introduced to death yet. Some of you might feel that your faith is strong because you haven't gotten a diagnosis yet that makes you realize that, that life is short. And that everything you're doing here on this earth is going to end and that people will forget about you. And you have to ask yourself what you've done that actually matters. And if all this really is true, and you really are going into the arms of God when you die, or are you going into just darkness and you disappear? There are people that struggle over that. Do you have mercy on those people? How are we building up the faith of our teenagers who are living in what's called a disenchanted world where there was a time where everyone was believing in God, demons, and angels? That was a given, and then we move forward from that. Our teenagers today have been taught by the world and their phones that this world begins with your experiences and everything you can see and touch. And if anyone wants you to believe that there is a God and an afterlife, they better have proof. 
that you can see and touch. And if they don't have that, then it's all a guesswork. Do we have pity on them? What's interesting here, which is so devastating to me, is that it seems to be indicating, as you look at the Greek words that are used here, this idea of mercy is the idea of pity. My first thought is to humble them a little bit. As someone that deals with teenagers on a constant basis at my work, I see a lot of kids that have started doubting, not because they're humble people that want to know what the truth is, but they're arrogant little jerks that think they know everything. <laughs> they really are. And the first thing I want to do is not have pity on them, but to humble them with some kind of argument that will make them look stupid, and then I want to talk to them, right? But instead, it says to have pity on them. In other words, don't be mean or criticize, encourage them. That's what it's getting at. It's the opposite of every bone in my body of what I want to do. Because what I see is not someone that is offending God through their doubting. I see someone that's offending me. Because they think they know more than me, and I want to show them that they don't. And so when I see people that offend me, I want to show no pity. In fact, I even wonder if I'm really worried about their doubting. And so scripture is very clear here. Have mercy on these Christians who are doubting. It then introduces you to a second group of people in verse 23. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. The contrast here is very interesting. If I'm going to snatch someone out of the fire, how am I going to do that? This is referring to a group who's in immediate danger because of their sin. If you think about our church, think of people that are in immediate danger because of their sin. The doubters are what I would call slow burners. They have this doubt that bothers them every once in a while, then they get over it for a little bit, then it comes back and you have to deal, how do I deal with someone in a loving way that keeps having that? But now what do I do with people that are in trouble now? Where they are depressed right now to the point where they might be at a place where they're not going to come back. Or how do I deal with people who are on the brink of walking away from church? They're on the brink of it. How do I deal with those people? Personally, if I can be transparent for a minute. Sadly, I find that when I see people on the brink, um, if I were to talk about it in a general sense, I would like, yes, we need to have compassion for them. But every time I meet a specific example, I'm disgusted. 
If I see someone depressed, I want them to get over it and stop being so selfish and thinking about themselves so much. If I see someone on the brink of a horrible life decision, my first thought is, just do it. Just go make that terrible decision. You'll see how terrible it is, and then you'll become crawling back. But they don't come crawling back because Satan wishes to have them. My compassion level is very low. But here it says to save them. What does it take to save someone who is in danger? It means you have to enter into the danger to help them. Right? We have a firefighter amongst us who understands what it means to put your life in danger to save other people in danger. And we, who don't like doing that for a living get to applaud them and then move on with our safe lives, right? But there is a sense in which when people are in danger, on the brink, you are entering into their danger to save them. It takes love to do that. The third group that we're introduced to is a group that we need to have mercy with fear, says, and on some, have mercy with fear. And then it says this weird thing, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So what is that talking about? We're supposed to have mercy with fear, and then hate like their clothes. And so that's weird. Um... But what it's talking about are those people that are in persistent, constant sin. If you've noticed, what we're doing is we're moving further and further into the complicated work of family, where we're getting into a kind of people that we have to deal with that are harder and harder to love. Doubters, not so hard. Some people, you know, we all have doubt, we can relate to it. It gets annoying when they keep coming up with the same doubt after you had the same conversation with them over and over. Um, but, you know, we can handle that. Then you come to the people that are about to destroy their lives because of all the terrible decisions they've made, and that's really hard to love those kind of people, especially when you have to put your own, uh, yourself at risk as you help them. But this third group is the hardest group to love which is those that are persistent in their sin. That there is a sin in their life that is constantly coming at them and they are failing over and over and over in this sin and it is persistent. And instead of doing the thing that I immediately want to do when I see people like that, we're supposed to have mercy on them with fear. What's that fear mean? If we look at the construction of the, of the sentence, what we see is we're supposed to fear for them. Oftentimes, people in persistent sin don't understand how fearful they should be. Because it's at that point, they should be asking themselves, am I even really a Christian? Or am I visiting Christianity and this just isn't working for me? That's a scary place to be. And many people in that position aren't scared of that. And you need to be scared for them. 
my first thought is to be upset at them. I get upset at them because instead of hating the clothes of sin that are upon them, I hate them. I'm angry at them. I show more anger towards them than I do for the sin. The whole point of showing the whole clothing part is to tell you you should hate sin so much you even hate the very clothes that are polluted with the sin. Sin should look so disgusting to you. If you, if you look at what Jude is getting at, it's talking about the undergarments that are stained with human discharge. That's how disgusting sin should be to us. It should be so gross and so we should hate sin. And we should hate it so much it makes us fearful for our brothers and sisters. Even when they don't have the sense enough to be fearful. Every approach that scripture is telling me to take with these people is not the approach that I have taken in my life and it's not the approach that I first desire to and I'll tell you why. Because after I've been shown mercy, I forget that I've been shown mercy. Um, Jesus tells a story about a man who was so deep in debt to his master that he should have been put away in prison and never see his family again. And instead of the master saying, okay, well, I won't put you in prison, but I'll make you work it off, and this is how we'll do it. You'll do it in, in payments and installments, and it's going to be a rough life for you, but you won't be in prison. That would have been mercy. But instead what the master does is just says, forget about it. Go back to your life and forget about the payment you owe me. You have been forgiven. Now, can you imagine that? How many of you have been in debt before? I'm not going to, you don't have to raise your hand. But I mean, just think in your mind, how many of you have been in debt before? I've been in a lot of debt. And for someone to come by, some, I mean, even for those people that I owe money to, to come to me and say, you know what? Forget it. That would be amazing. That would change my life. Where I owed nothing to anyone because someone said, it's okay, it's on me. It would change the way I would think about other people who have debt. But in this story, what happens is this man, after being forgiven something where he should have gone to jail, he goes home and someone owes him just a few bucks. It's almost nothing, but he, he gets so upset that this person owes him something that he puts the guy in jail. The guy that has been given this, forgiven this huge debt can't even forgive a guy who owed him a few bucks and he puts him in jail. And the master comes back and says, you wicked, horrible human being. Now my wrath is going to come down upon you. When I think about the mercy that has been shown to me, 
When I think about the kind of mistakes I made in my life that, have, that should have destroyed my life. There has been many times in my life where I should have been destroyed for my acts. I should have been destroyed merely for my attitude, but I should definitely have been destroyed for the things and choices I made in my life. And God had mercy on me. And as I think about that mercy, I am reminded at how little mercy I have for my brothers and sisters, especially as an elder. Where scripture speaks to me and says, are you pitying those who were just like you? Are you going to save those who were close to the fire like you were? Are you going to be gentle with those who are in persistent sin that almost ruined your marriage? Are you going to be kind to them the way the Father was kind to you? And I'm filled with guilt and shame because I think about that parable that our Lord shared and I see myself as the one that could not forgive, even though he has been forgiven much. Let us remember what Scripture has told us in Jude. That if we're going to contend for the faith, we're going to be contending for each other's faith. Which means, if we're going to be family, it's going to get weird. And we've got to be okay with that. And love each other through it. This was a wake-up call for me, and so I hope it was helpful to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We pray that it would impact our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our church as you give us the strength to strengthen each other. Lord, help us be responsible for each other's faith as we contend for it by contending for each other. And Lord, I pray that our church would be known for its love for each other because of its love for you. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.